Love Business with Alan Wick. Hello, this is Alan Wick, and welcome to my show. I've been a business coach for 20 years, focusing on owner-managed businesses. Before that, I spent 25 years as an entrepreneur, founding, scaling up, and ultimately selling a number of businesses nationally and internationally. Some years ago, the late Steve Jobs gave a wonderful speech to students at Stanford University at the end of their studies, and in it, he advised them to stay hungry, stay foolish. I decided to adapt what he said to students then for entrepreneurs now. So instead of stay hungry, stay foolish, I say stay hungry, stay learning. In this show, I interview experienced entrepreneurs, hearing their success stories and also discussing their mistakes and learnings as they continue along their business journey. If you have a question or a comment, you can call us on 01342 889 488 or you can email lovebusiness at alanwick.com. I'm also proud to say that my show is sponsored by Magus Wealth. There's a lot involved in selling a business, and so having good advisors on your side is essential. The earlier you start the process and surround yourself with the right team, the better. Working with the right advisors will add significant value to the process. So, if you're thinking about exiting or selling your business, speak to Magus Wealth today. This week, I'm interviewing Nick Russell. So hello, Nick, and thank you so much for coming on to my show. Do tell the listeners what you do and the businesses that you're involved with. Hello, Alan, and thanks so much for inviting me. So I guess you could describe what I do as being a geoscientist, and um, that involves making maps. And although, as we'll discuss later, I've been involved with several businesses that are still active, they all revolve around communicating information through maps. So um, my background started as a exploration geologist. So uh, looking at the earth for minerals, and then that evolved into um, many other activities, all revolving around using scientific mapping skills, but essentially communicating that information very clearly to non-specialists so that they can get on and do their jobs. Interesting. And so how does that translate into business and so on? What are you involved with at the moment? So the, the first business we I, I co-founded with my good friend from university, Rob McDonald, is called Teradat. And uh, Teradat was started 28 years ago. And that provides a service of mapping below the ground using non-destructive techniques. So if anyone has a, a um, question about what lies beneath a brownfield site in terms of contamination, old basements or chambers, or maybe you're building a road and you want to know how deep the rock is, and uh, there could be voids that could cause structural failures in the future, then we've got a suite of scientific techniques that can actually provide maps of where those are. And and, uh, who are your customers or clients? Well, that's one of the really great things about the job is that 
every job is different and every client is different. And it could range from somebody who's simply got a hole opening up in their back garden right through to a major river crossing where a huge bridge is being built, in, in which instance we would work for consulting engineers. And we also work in the waste management industry, so characterizing the internal structure of landfill facilities and looking for leakage and potential environmental hazards. Um, and then also local authorities, so um, mapping historic buildings, mapping structural failures. And I live in South Wales and we've got a beautiful coastline. And one of my favourite jobs is actually monitoring the coasts and the cliffs for erosion and potential future failure. So there's a great range of clients and a great range of applications. And give us an idea of the sort of size of your business and, and who else is involved. What type of capabilities and team do you need to be able to provide that kind of service? Well, the main skill that most of our staff have is a degree in geosciences. So that could be geology or it could be geophysics. And uh, as I said, geophysics is that method of investigating the physical properties of the subsurface to uh, to get that information. So um, we started off just myself and Rob in our student house with a single phone under the stairs that was shared with other students. And then we actually moved into Cardiff University and, and we were there for about eight years and we had an office, a very nice office actually. And uh, that really gave us a foot in the door to engage with other upcoming students and researchers. And pretty much all of our staff over our history to date have come from those sort of academic routes, um, our relationships with Cardiff, Bristol, Leeds universities, to name a few. So uh, we're currently about 20 geoscientists in our head office in Cardiff. We've also got an office in Glasgow to service the north of the country. And uh, a lot of our work there revolve, revolves around renewable energy and wind farms. And then we've recently, in fact, within the last two weeks, officially incorporated an office in Spain. And uh, the reason for that is we've got a, a couple of really great guys out there. Javier, who runs that office, is really keen on the business development side and the science side. And there's some great opportunities in the mining industry in Spain. And then also now being um, cast adrift from the EU after Brexit, we've actually got a trading base in the EU still, which could be useful for future logistics. And, and was that driven? Was your uh, decision to open up in Spain driven partly by Brexit? Or was that all, always going to be um, an opportunity for your company, irrespective of, of Brexit? It was always an opportunity for us. And I think the, the benefits of whatever might come from being in the EU are a happy accident. Okay, and and how do you you talked about business development? Um, how do you does do you get new business? Do people know you? Are you well known? Is your business well known? What what's the name of it? The brand. Um, well, the, the brand is um, geophysical ground investigation, but uh, and it's a very small sector, really, especially if you focus in on high resolution, shallow applications such as the ones I've described. 
Um, a lot of people, when you say geophysics, might think of the oil industry and they'll think of uh, big marine ships. And that's a completely different sector, much higher pay scales, much more competitive, much higher overheads. So we, we're we focusing in on smaller niche markets, which is really why I think we've got a very good core of loyal clients. And most of our work comes around through word of mouth or recommendation or repeat business. And so that I wondered about um, the type of work you're providing those clients, whether it is repeat and they'll come back to you over the years or it, they tend to be more one-off projects and pieces of work. Um, I think they'd be one-off if we failed. And the reason why we've got a very low failure rate is partly because we've got great experience from doing it so many times. And hence, we say no a lot. So if somebody phones up, we won't say, oh, yeah, we can do it and just earn a fast buck. We'll be honest and um, we might have a go and then we won't charge them if it doesn't work. But um, the the fact that we're open and honest, we're easy to work with and we explain quite complex science in terms that they can relate to their projects means that, that our clients are very happy to come back and work with us again in the future. So because it's such a specialised area, Nick, I'm just thinking on behalf of the listeners that it might be helpful if you could give a case study, a little example maybe of of work that your business has done where it worked and it was successful. Yeah, sure. Um, Let me think. Well, yeah, one good example actually is in Ireland. We used to do a lot of work in Ireland and a lot of the geology of Southern Ireland is limestone. And one of the main characteristics that you get with limestone is uh, the formation of caves and cavities from water washing out the voids over millennia or millions of years. And if you're going to build a road over those, you want to know where those cavities are, because as we quite often see on YouTube and social media these days, buses or smaller vehicles or even small dogs can disappear down these holes and they can be a great risk. So when the um, EU was investing a lot in the infrastructure of Ireland, there was a need to characterise these road routes across. And uh, so we've we've got some very effective techniques for profiling many kilometres of road line in a day and then producing maps that engineers can then use to investigate possible hazards. Um, Another example on a a smaller scale is archaeology. So again, because uh, in fact, if anyone's seen Channel 4's Time Team with Tony Robinson, uh, also known Baldrick, um, then they call it geophys. And that's that's a great point of reference for our clients. They say, oh, you're the guys that do the geophys. And uh, so we can carry out very high resolution mapping on a field or a construction site to identify maybe a Roman villa or uh, some hidden graves or, or anything like that. So there's two different extremes of scale of what we do. And and you mentioned um, when something doesn't work and you're very careful about who you work with and, and often say no, which is a, a theme I uh, return to a lot in, in, in the work that I do about, uh, about people making sure there's a good match with projects or, or clients and so on. But can you give an example of what a project would look like if it was not the right type of thing? What could go wrong? What does not working mean in your field, Nick? 
Um, well, catastrophic liability would be the worst instance. And uh, one comes to mind where we used to apply our techniques for mapping unexploded ordnance, so unexploded bombs that might be lying around in the ground, either from the war, from, uh, from bombs, or from testing a military training grounds. And there was one particular site where finding a lump of iron in the ground is relatively easy. And if you've got your method up to scratch, you can do it and you can put a little flag in the ground and then someone can, someone else can come along and dispose it or identify it. And we used to do a lot of that. But there was one particular site where because of the project timeline, they were importing lots of material to build up the land. And unfortunately, one of these loads contained a hand grenade and the client was a very, very large um, American corporation. And as soon as that was discovered and this whole project went on stop, we had American lawyers coming over to want to explain how come we'd missed it, how come we jeopardised it, is there anything else we'd missed? And uh, it was only trying, it was like being in court trying to explain the science and our procedures and the project manager trying to explain that he was ignoring our requests for the site to be left uncontaminated, that uh, they, they believed that we were carrying out correct procedures. So um, really, if, if things go wrong, then we miss what we're supposed to be looking for in the ground, and that could have big implications down the line on a very large scale. Interesting. And, and, and because this is a, a, a business program um, and the listeners are business owners, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to know how you manage your risk and liabilities. I, I can imagine a very expensive insurance policy for your business, but I may be wrong. Um, it's pretty normal engineering insurance. It's nothing that special, especially as we specifically opted out of certain things like bomb disposal. But um, Really, it's the way you write your reports and you say that this conclusion or these recommendations require further ground truthing. So although we can see below the ground without having to dig up, you really do need to ground truth what we do. So we never say there's definitely no mine shaft under that proposed industrial estate. We'll say there's a pro high probability that there's a void at this coordinate and we recommend that you go and investigate it. Ground truth. I've never heard that expression. Um, well, in other words, uh, you get a spade or a digger or a drill rig and you go and dig a hole and you have a look. <laughs> okay. Ground truth sounds better than it that. It does, yeah. yeah. I like the sound of that. Fascinating. So let, let's wind back, Nick, and, and to the beginning of the, the, the business. Why, why did you start it? Why was this an area of interest for you? How did all that happen? Well, it really all started, I think, when I was making my A-level choices. And um, I remember having a conversation with my dad. And I, I was always biased towards the sciences. But he said, just try and choose something that you really love doing and just see where it leads. And so my third choice was geology. And that was really because... As a boy, I always collected rocks. I had a rock collection that I'd inherited from my grandfather. And I'm one of those people that spends more time outdoors than I do indoors. And um, so that seemed like a really great choice and a good combination. And it was after I did my A-levels that I then went to university and I chose geology 
And again, that wasn't because I wanted to become a geoscientist. It's really because I just wanted to be out there in doing um, investigations and learning about the history of the planet, going to beaches, going to mountains. And uh, really, that was what drove me into that. And then that led into all the choices I've made for all the businesses that I've been involved with. Interesting. But the the, the link between that uh, love of and interest in geology and geoscience and so on, it isn't automatic, in my view, that, that a business comes from it. And I'm always fascinated uh, uh, to hear where did the idea of a business that came from that, as opposed to, for example, becoming an employee or more of a the science side of following that interest and that love into that area? Um, well, I think there's two aspects to that question. Um, the first one was that I've, my family are a very innovative family and quite there's a lot of like an entrepreneurial dna in like my dad and he's, he writes a lot of books and um and people before him as well and so I've, I've always had that thing in me of making something out of nothing you know when i was about 12 years old i used to walk people's dogs um, I remember before that, I even used to try and uh, put tree sap into toothpaste tubes and sell it as toothpaste, as uh, superglue, but uh, that, that never took off, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the second thing about deciding not to become an employee is that my first job after graduating was working in Australia for a very, very large mining company. And um, my job was doing gold exploration in the middle of nowhere. And it was a great thing. It was a really fantastic experience. But I really grated when I was told what to do. And when I did something that I thought was to the best of my abilities, I was told that it wasn't good enough or do it this way rather than that way. And I thought, well, I, I don't want to spend my working life feeling like that. So it was really then when I came back from Australia and that move was really driven by a crash in the gold price and suddenly all, there was no need to explore for gold. Um, then the opportunity arose to pick up some work from the university. Uh, we were aware that they were getting inquiries from industry to say, could you come and survey this site? And uh, ironically, that never, ever happened. We never got a job from the university, but it was just that idea that provided the catalyst for Rob and I to set up a company and uh, and then just start putting the idea out there that we could solve problems for certain types of applications. And are your skills complementary after, again, that's another theme that I look at a lot uh, in terms of whether people start a business on their own, whether they start with partners, uh, what what are the skill sets and so on, and how much of those been thought through, or is it more of a gut instinct thing? Um, it's, it's been interesting that over the years, we've hardly ever had a crossword, and our roles have been pretty organically defined. So Rob is fantastic at the science and especially particular aspects of it, which are very specialised. And um, we're both very calm people. And my other my skill really is the people side and forming those networks and uh, relationships with people who either could become clients or people who could become our suppliers, both equally important, as, as you know, in, in keeping that business moving and, and growing. Um, I remember 
right at the beginning, we had a one computer and the two of us would sit there and we'd take it in turns. One of us would talk and the other would write. And these were our marketing letters that we sent out. So that sounds like a very good partnership. I'm delighted to hear that. And and tell us a little bit, bit about the early days of the business and your your first wins and so on. Remember back to those and how they felt? Yeah, I remember the first win and uh, I remember it, it felt very tight in a physical sense because Rob and I thought we needed to look the part. So we went to the army surplus and bought a couple of blue overalls with our company name embroidered on the back in fact we didn't the only reason we got a company name was to write it on the back so we looked professional but unfortunately they were both extra small in size because they were the only two that matched so you imagine us both turning up on a landfill in Bedfordshire and meeting the client wearing very proudly these undersized overalls speaking in slightly squeaky voices with dry mouths and trying to sell the benefits of this new technique that no one had really applied in this country to to that to that particular problem but did you get the work nevertheless we did yes and and that formed um, many years of of uh, a bit of a role of work in waste management so again like i said characterizing the internal structure of landfills for contamination and uh, that gave us enough money to constantly reinvest in the company and specifically the equipment that we use, because it's very, as you can imagine, very specialised, quite expensive. And uh, so we, we just kept ploughing it all back in. So we had our own facilities. Um, we eventually bought a van so we could drive around. And uh, and that's really how it started. And another thing that you mentioned there um, about being innovative, and despite your uniforms and how you turned up at that first um, uh, prospect that you were bringing something new to this country that hadn't been done before. Can you speak a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, so it's taking a technique that was traditionally used for looking for very big things like mineral ore bodies, you know, something that the size of a town, to scaling it down and increasing the accuracy so you could pinpoint things like a buried drum of toxic waste or a, a whole a cellar under an old pub, for example. And uh, so that was really an innovation that took place because the equipment and instrumentation was evolving at that time about 20 years ago. So we, we embraced that wave of innovation that was really coming over from Canada and uh, the United States. And then being among the first to apply it to the engineering and environmental market in the UK. And have there been any other um, things that, that your business has invented by itself or created or processes of ways of doing things as well as bringing in to this country things that haven't been tried before? Very much so. And um, our we've constantly got a focus on research and development and that really means applying existing technology to novel or new applications. And that might be just trying it in a place nobody else has done before. And uh, we're actually doing that now with looking at the problem of dams, um, earth dams that hold back bodies of water, drinking water. And because a lot of those were built during the Victorian era, no one knows what's inside them. And a lot of them leak. 
And with these extreme weather events we're getting, um, that there could be the potential for a catastrophic failure. So we've developed an automated tool that water authorities could use to monitor those sites. So that's just one example of a new application of existing technology. Um, we've also developed a lot of software for modeling or, or uh, processing our data to give more accurate or more believable results. Um, so we keep relationships with um, universities. We've pretty much always got a PhD project that we're an industrial supporter of, or we go and visit local groups or appear as guest lecturers on courses, um, partly to talk about the science, but also to talk about um, what it's like to start a business and what opportunities there are in our field. So it sounds very much built into the DNA of your business, innovation, R&D, a commitment to that. And you choose that, for example, by taking committing a certain percentage of your turnover every year, or how do you choose what to spend, how much to spend, and on what? Um, to be honest, we, we very rarely choose what to spend on anything. Um, I think a lot of it's really driven by curiosity of what would happen if we tried this to that. And because we, we do this because we love doing it. And that's the main motivator. We love the science and we love, you know, some of our staff are very avid cavers and we make it totally acceptable for them to borrow some of the equipment at the weekends and go and use it to try and explore for caves. And that's, uh, into that overlap of work and leisure time is, is very important. And from a, again, from a business point of view, um, are you recognizing all of that R and D innovation in either patents or protecting your IP? You know, helping build shareholder value in the business is that something you do relatively formally, or it's just part of the business one way or the other? To be honest, Alan, that's not something that we really do um partly because i think it's it's quite generic it's it's like saying oh i'm going to apply this new piece of equipment to a sport and you you know the sport still exists and the equipment still exists it's how you use it um and also i don't think we we would ever be able to support ourselves if we got into a position where something was infringed um, so I think our answer to that is really continuously innovate and keep your finger on the pulse of where there may be opportunities. And that both fuels the enthusiasm and the creativity of your team and, uh, and also means that you're there in the right place at the right time when the opportunities arise. Yeah. And, and so going back to the, to the commercial side of the business and the, the image that you uh, described earlier of the two of you turning up in the, in the uniforms that were a bit too small and so on, uh, and that was then your first win. Do you remember other stages along your journey where there was all oh, that was the moment when we went from that stage to another stage as a business? Yeah, I think um, there's always those moments where you lose a little bit of sleep at night because you've made a decision to commit to some higher risk. And uh, that could be investing in a piece of equipment. I remember once we bought an instrument that can measure the Earth's gravitational field, and that cost $100,000. And you know, that was a lot of money for us when we still had student loans. Um, we've also purchased all the, prop all the office premises that we occupy. And every time we've done that, 
it's always been a little bit scary, but then very quickly you realise, why the hell didn't we do that sooner? That's made such a big difference. It's given us space to do better work. It's, uh, it's helped crystallise everything we own rather than having it spread around in garages. And, and what about the, um, the, the stages in terms of turnover growth as the business has gone through or numbers of people that you've employed? With that sort of size of business and that number of people, have you adopt, had to adopt different processes or different uh, approaches to, to your people that are involved in the business? Again, going back over the story of the business and how it's grown. Well, that's the other big investment for any business is taking on new staff. And again, if you can, I think that's one of the main skills that entrepreneurs have or need is to be able to create that team of people who can work together and do good work and stick to the original ethos of the founders. And as you become more mature in your business as an owner, it's sometimes you feel a bit detached from that and then you worry that that ethos isn't continuing. But uh, those worries are usually unfounded because if you've done a good job, you've got that momentum even when you're not there. So, um, and then there's the things of you, you, do, you end up doing less science and more admin on job contracts and stuff. But uh, I think one of the big bits of advice I give to startup companies is stick to what you're good at and outsource those things that you, uh, you really don't understand or could get you into trouble. Yeah, interesting. And, and so um, looking back at the, at the growth of the business over the years, has it been fairly steady? Have there been stages when there's been sudden bursts of, uh, of growth and then steady, you know, and then flatten out? How's that gone? No, I'm really proud of the fact that in our 28 years, with the exception of COVID, Every year has been better than the previous year. And I think we can attribute that to the fact that we've, we can apply our services to many different sectors. So, for example, in the mid-90s, we did a lot of work for property development. So large areas of greenfield or brownfield land that were having houses built on them. And then suddenly... When there's a financial crisis, all of that stops and there's uncertainty. But then we think, well, what else can we do? And then there's waste management or contaminated land. You know, those aren't going to be affected by recessions. And um, and then there's things like renewable energy. So investment and funding that goes into putting up wind farms or solar farms, they all need ground information. So we can very dynamically move into those areas and offer our services yeah so that sounds like uh, agility as i describe it yeah. in terms of being a small business and be able be able to go with where the, the business is basically and and flex as you go and you mentioned covid there nick how has that affected your your business over the last 18 months or so um, well i remember pretty much a year ago to uh, this this time of year we really didn't, nobody really knew what was going to happen and um, it was quite a scary time but uh, then when the furlough scheme was announced we did take advantage of that but not for everybody we kept a core team of pe- people who were willing to go out on site 
to be available for, for projects. And whilst the workflow drastically declined because construction sites shut down, um, there were still opportunities both in response to uh, things like landslides or holes suddenly opening up. We did some work in airports where the runways were shut. Um, so there was enough to keep us ticking along and, in, and ensure our survival. Um, and then later in last year, which was uh, 2020, the construction industry, I think the government saw that the construction industry really needed to keep going to partly fuel the economy, as well as the energy sector. And those sectors went crazy. And, and then we just didn't have enough capacity in the company. And that's really continuing now. And, and managing capacity in this type of business is, is another key theme that um, that I, I love to hear um, how different entrepreneurs cope with that. Is that something that uh, is easy to manage? It, it sounds until COVID, your growth was relatively steady and capacity, I'm guessing, was relatively manageable. But what about when there, there are very dramatic fluctuations in demand uh, and your your team sound highly specialized and it's not it sounds as if you can't suddenly take get somebody off the street and say come on here's a project we need your help with it so how do you manage your your capacity from that point of view nick um, well, we're, we're very lucky, again, in, in having a good member of our team, Simon, who's our operations manager, and he thinks nothing of telling a client, well, we can't do that until three months' time. And I'm the opposite of that. I'm, I'm a bit of a people pleaser, and I'll say, oh, we'll fit it in, I'll do it next week, or we'll do it, and that drives people mad and causes a lot of stress and rushing, and yeah, we, we could do it, but um, I'm really grateful to have somebody that can do all that planning. We also take advantage of um, intern schemes. Um, I know Santander and Cardiff University, uh, they, they've got a scheme and we usually take a couple of people over the summer when we are traditionally a bit quieter, but that does help us to cover periods when people are on holiday and they can contribute as field people. And then I also mentioned our academic research. So quite often the, um, the, the researcher will do some time embedded within our company as a member of staff as well okay and uh, looking again looking back um what would you say was the thing that you were proudest of with the business nick that you've achieved i think um really it's the fact that rob and i can step back now and everything carries on everything keeps growing we still get good recommendations and feedback from our clients and so it's really creating something that has the momentum to carry on on its own as if we were still there. And and the other side of the equation, my one that the themes of this show, I, I uh, stole uh, Steve Jobs's dictum that to, to stay hungry, stay foolish, and I changed it and stay hungry, stay learning. So I'm very interested in mistakes and learnings and so on, looking back. Uh, what would you say has been a mistake that you would have done differently and perhaps be useful advice to pass on to entrepreneurs who are listening? Well, I think it would be not saying no enough and listening to your inner voice or maybe the voice of your wife saying that's really not a good idea. And uh, so one one example, um, I mean, they, they, you always learn from these experiences. So there's, I don't think there's anything 
any such thing as a mistake, but it's been entering into collaborations or projects that are far bigger than we can manage. And down the road, it might look like they that will become a golden goose or something that could enable you to upscale fabulously. I mean, one example is where we we partnered, uh, we actually formed a separate sister company that focused on oil and gas exploration. And um, a lot of that work was in the Far East. And it was using a really innovative technique that had been invented by our partners. And we, we got on really well. However, the risks of that work were just unbelievable. You know, we were dealing with government ministries as opposed to local engineering firms. Um, I was having to fly out to Indonesia just to sign a document. Um, I was having to convince, well, there was all sorts of politics. Um, it really showed that my network of contacts helped because I, at one point I had to get um, the British embassy and uh, the trade advisors to help us to renegotiate a contract that we were awarded and that was taken away all very very stressful and then it got even more stressful when working in remote places this is Papua New Guinea um, our field team suddenly we lost contact with them on the daily check-in and we found on the news that there was a local uprising and houses were being burned down and you think oh did we take out that insurance policy what's our plan b and you think oh we really maybe didn't think this through enough we were just enthusiastic enthusiastic scientists we had a great solution and we could offer great results but the logistical side of it was really more than we could we could uh, cope with at the time so in hindsight saying no to that and focusing on our core business would have been a good idea yeah, thanks, Nick. That's a really, really great story. And if we look to the future now of, you, of your business, and you and I had a chat in three years or five years' time, what would it look like? What are you hoping for, dreaming of for the future of your business? Well, we're not getting any younger. So um, I would like to see the momentum that I described of that foundation continuing with the younger people as they come into the company. I'd also like to see our regional offices expanding. So I mentioned Spain and Scotland. There's opportunities in Italy. There's opportunities in Austria. Um, Austria is one example where we can apply our science to solve problems to do with global warming and climate change and uh, impacts on human safety as a result of that. So maybe moving into some more applied areas that have a real purpose and a purpose for good. That's one area that I, I would like to see in the future. Um, are you familiar with the, the triple bottom line concept? Is that the sort of direction you're talking about, purpose, profit and planet? I think so, yes. Yeah, that's always been like invisibly written in everything we do. And so um, I, that actually links with something I've been uh, curious about uh, listening to you is how much of your work could be involved with helping to, to deal with the climate emergency. And could that be quite a conscious decision that more and more of your work, whether here in the UK or if you expand internationally in the future, could be uh, um, consciously and very overtly linked with planet uh, the, the climate emergency type of issues that are coming up and how your company can help 
countries, governments, engineering firms, and so on deal with that? Very much so. Um, and uh, one of the areas of um, like sidelines or tangents we've taken with from Teradat is 3D mapping, and it's called reality capture. So that's creating accurate digital models of, of um, anything in the world. So it could be a building, it could be a town, it could be a coastline. And one of the big impacts of climate change is flooding and uh, and also erosion landslips and all, all that sort of thing so um there's a very good cross pollination between our mapping expertise on mapping the ground and geology and then mapping the actual shape of the land and combining those in a way that could then benefit planners insurance companies developers to uh, to build more safely and, and build more responsibly yeah, that's pre- preventing problems yeah. before they happen, using your technology and so on. That sounds very valuable. And so um, we're, we're three, five years ahead and you've got offices in other countries and you're doing the sort of work you were describing. And you, were, you, you said, well, you know, we're not getting any younger. How do you see your roles developing over the years ahead? So taking gradually more and more of a backseat and then seeing the the next generation of your leadership team gradually uh, coming up? What what are the options that you're thinking of in that respect? Yeah, I think um, it's certainly nurturing a leadership team to, uh, to, to move up through the ranks. Um, and I can only speak personally in, in that uh, I want to be able to make more space to do the things that I really love doing. And one of those things is, um, is teaching and, and sharing our story to help upcoming generations of entrepreneurs or young people who may have a little spark in their mind. And I'm already doing that with Exeter University in the capacity of um, Royal Society Entrepreneur in Residence. And what that means is that the Royal Society in London are paying for one day a week of my time to be embedded with the engineering school in Exeter to help them develop a brand new course called Engineering and Entrepreneurship and then show them skills, both through my own example um, and through general business practice, helping them how to have good ideas and turn those ideas into possible project products or services in the future. And uh, so I, I find that hugely rewarding. And uh, I've just been awarded a third year in that role. So that I, I really would like to do more of that sort of thing as well. Yeah, that that sounds fascinating, and and so it it's it sounds like a gradual move move more and more into that teaching area and working with young entrepreneurs, and maybe more gradually withdrawing. And I, I understand you're speaking for yourself, and gradually over the years ahead, withdrawing from the day to day running of the business, and that's such a difficult thing to achieve, Nick. Uh, you know, in my work, I see a lot of owners who find it very hard to let go. And that the, their business is their identity, and almost without it, they're nothing. That's their fear that there is no life other than with their business. And it sounds like you do have other interests. Of course, they're linked with entrepreneurship that uh, you can look forward to. Yeah, and um, well, I, I can say that about four years ago, I did get overwhelmed by putting too much into my business and uh, you know some some people call it burnout or anxiety but I did have a time where everything just seemed to implode and that forced me into a, a big period of reflection and 
and uh, I've just written written a written read a book by um, David White called Three Marriages, and that's about when when we get to a stage in life we have our marriage to our partners, and then our family and our children. We have our marriage to our vocation, our work, and if you are a business owner, that's your company family. And then the third one, and not least importantly, is your marriage to yourself and your own identity. And that's a constantly moving target. It's constantly evolving. And if one's upset, it affects the others. And I think really learning to appreciate the interrelationship between those three personalities is a key to getting a good balance between your life and your work, because it can't just be all about the work. That sounds like got an image of three legs of a stool and and they're even the same length. And if any one leg is, isn't the same, then the stool will fall over and won't be balanced. So that's the sort of image I got as you described that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And so um, yeah, if, you, yeah, if you spend too much time with your family and you don't do enough work, then work's going to suffer. Uh, but really, if you don't look after yourself, it's a bit like that analogy with the uh, famous analogy with the the planes when they're doing the safety announcement. You, you put the masks on the children and the old people first, because if you're not in a condition to help people, then how can you help yourself and help your business? I, um, are you referring to where the stewardess always stands up and says, before before helping others, put put the mask on yourself yeah. and then help somebody else? It's that sort okay. of image to it. Um, and so for, from the business's point of view, can you imagine it um, in three, five years' time as you're gradually uh, um, less involved in the day-to-day being a lot bigger than it is now or, or being gradual. I get this image of quite a worldwide business by that time, and it's got the potential for that. Potentially, but um, I think with that level of growth, it starts to become less attractive to the kind of people that work in our organisations. Um, we've had two or three opportunities where we've, we could have sold some equity in our companies to become part of much larger global organizations. And uh, we've always walked away from those. We, we just could, couldn't see that fitting. I think we, our identity is highly specialized, focusing in on particular applications is what we're good at and what we like doing. And if we suddenly become part of a huge organization and they say, right, we're going to divert all your skills to looking at the thickness of railway ballast on a whole railway network in France, then you think, well, that's that's all the job satisfaction for our staff gone. Yeah, so it sounds like it's core core values that staying true to the to the business's values in whatever you do is key. And and to that point, Nick, is that something that you've articulated? Have you put work into um, making sure those are written down and communicated? How much work have you done in that respect there? That you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, that value stuff, it's all very woo-woo and soft. In my view, it's the opposite. It's the hardest work businesses can do, but it's from those that the, actually the most sustainable profits derive, uh, in my opinion. Exactly. And um, I think one of the big opportunities I've had during this lockdown period is, is a chance just to reflect on our journey. And that's tied up quite nicely with my role in Exeter of having to tell our story to 
young people or business startups or help with spin-out companies. And uh, so I've channeled some of that back into our company for the first time because prior to that we were always too busy you think oh I've got this deadline I've got this tender but to be able to write and talk about what you've done and where you've come from does help to form to help to indelibly record that DNA of of your foundation and and so that sounds like more towards a manifesto of some kind Yes, and that's on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> on a very, I can imagine a very long to-do list. Well, let, let's uh, move on to um, learnings. As I said before, my my catchphrase is, is "Stay hungry, stay learning." And I, I'd love it if you could Nick share what you've learned along your journey and going back over any other mistakes as as well as the type of thing where you've bitten off more than you could chew um any other learnings that you'd love to pass on and perhaps pinching a little bit from the work you do with the university um for our listeners in terms of uh messages or things to watch out for lessons that other entrepreneurs may find useful sure um I think one of them is uh, something our, our mutual acquaintance David Hyatt says, and that's do one thing well. And uh, it doesn't mean just do one method or, or anything, but it's stick to your core capability and let that evolve. You can adapt it by all means. But uh, there was one point in our history where we started selling ruggedized computers. So a lot of our survey equipment is controlled by computers. And back in the early 90s, no such thing existed. So we actually developed a piece of kit that got better and better with time to the point where we thought one day, oh, we could sell these. So we set up a separate company called TerraLogic that started selling these tough waterproof computers. And it did very well, but then it got started to become unmanageable and impinge on our day-to-day core business. I remember one famous example where we'd sold one to a film crew who were making a, a Hollywood movie called K2. So they were actually roped onto the side of K2 in a blizzard with one of our laptops trying to record some green screen footage. And a known design flaw in them suddenly kicked in and the screen went dark. So we had this furious call on a satellite phone saying, how do you fix this? And so we were trying to talk under all these tiny screws and stuff. And it was at that point we thought, well, what what should we focus on? And uh, so we actually brought someone else in and they grew that business very well for a few years until it was ultimately sold. But uh, I think with hindsight, it's fine to develop stuff for your own benefit, but as soon as you think, well, we could do this with it, we could do that with it, then that could start to contaminate your core beliefs and your core business. And we've only got a finite amount of time. Doing different things is another big thing I'd like, I would share with anybody in business. And uh, what I mean by that is exposing yourself to other disciplines, other activities, other interests, So not only do you learn from that, sometimes you can find fascinating cross-pollination with your own, you know, maybe poetry and geophysics go together. And then you you think, well, they're both based on waveforms. Maybe there's some some angle you could take on that. But it's also the people you meet. And I think that's the most important thing I would say to anybody is that it's all about the people. I've said about the networks of suppliers. If you don't get on well with the people that supply the equipment or resources or materials you need for your business, 
then they're not going to want to help you when you're in a tight spot. Um, and then meeting different people from different backgrounds can be a great catalyst for creativity as well. Um, I mean, there was one time where I, I took up white collar boxing just to see what it's about. And I was fed up of going to Skittles evenings with other rival geologist groups from around South Wales. And, uh, you know, I broke my nose and I can't smell properly now, but I met some great people and it was it gave me a great insight into myself and the world in, in general, another bit of the jigsaw of life. Is that something you carried on doing, white-collar boxing, or you tried it and then moved on? No, I, I, I tried it and moved on to my wife's relief, and, and then I, I do other crazy things. Yeah. Right now, I, I go swimming in the sea every morning at sunrise with just some trimming, swimming trunks on. But again, I've met a great bunch of people, and there's there's some great synergy with some exciting possible things we could do with work in the future too. So try different things, try things outside your comfort zone. That's what I I think that message is, uh, and and that will help develop you. And I think there's a a link between um, a a business owner's own development and capabilities and the the, uh, development and growth of their own business. And that may sound like an obvious thing to say, but I often come across companies that are stuck at a certain level, look a little bit deeper. It's because the owner or owners have themselves become a little bit stuck. And by unsticking them, hey, presto, the business gets unstuck and moves on to the next level. So it sounds like a big believer in that. Yeah, and that's why, as I said, when I when I got a bit overwhelmed and and I started, I, I took that as a, a, a cue to really look inside myself. You start to ask questions of, well, why am I doing this? How did I get to that point? And and it's always that thing. Well, you don't look after yourself, and if you think, well, who looks after me? It's usually nobody. It's it's you. You've got to put that framework and those routines and those structures in place so that you can be fit and you can show up in a fit state, not just for work, but for everything else you do in life. Uh, I don't know if you feel I'm taking this a bit far, that thought, but it sounds like love yourself is another big message. I think so, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to love doing things, but you, you've got to do them for the right reasons. Fantastic. Well, Nick, it's been absolutely fascinating uh, talking with you and and thank you very much again. And if anybody wants to find out more about you or what you do, your business, what is the URL for your company? The URL is teradat, that's T-E-R-R-A-D-A-T dot co dot UK. Although anyone who's remotely more interested than that, they might want to look me up on LinkedIn because there are all my other business activities. We haven't even talked about my network of weather companies that existed as a side project just so we could go snowboarding and uh, is now a very significant digital publisher for online weather. But uh, that's just something, again, that we love doing and, and just evolved into something that's really cool. Well, perhaps I can persuade you to come back for round two uh, and talk about those companies as well, because they sound fascinating. And I think if anybody wants to find uh, Nick on LinkedIn, I should just mention that the spelling of your surname is R-U-S-S-I-L-L. 
um, which is an unusual spelling of Russell as far as I've seen. So um, thank you again, Nick. Fascinating chatting and the very best of, of luck for the future. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, that about wraps things up. I do hope that you've taken away some useful learnings for your own business. If you have a question or comment, please call 01342-889-488 or send me an email at lovebusiness at If you'd like to listen to this show again, visit the Listen page on meridianfm.com. You'll also find the link on the radio show page of my website, alanwick.com. I'm proud to say that my show is sponsored by Magus Wealth. If you're planning on selling your business, Magus Wealth can guide you through the process, helping you to understand how much your business is worth. They'll give you access to their trusted partners to ensure that every aspect of getting your business ready for sale is covered. Get in touch with Magus Wealth. It starts with a conversation. Thank you for listening. Do tune in again at the same time, 2pm every Sunday, when I'll be interviewing another interesting entrepreneur. And remember, stay hungry, stay learning. Love Business with Alan Wick.